Welcome into Unsportsmanlike Conduct on KALA HD2 and the 106.1 FM dial. I'm Logan Howell. With me, as always, is David Meyer. And David, how are you tonight? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty good. Excited to get into uh, the sports topics we have tonight. We have some NBA news. Kevin Durant injured again. Anthony Davis is back. And also another big injury that struck the NBA, as well as some MLB. Are we hitting the panic button on some of these teams so far? And also some NFL to get into tonight. Alex Smith finally calls it a career after his very inspirational career that he had. But before we get into tonight's show, we're going to go over this week's Athlete of the Month. It's the third Tuesday of April, and at the end of the month, the NFL Draft will take place, next Thursday to be exact. And this month, we've looked at the best NFL Draft picks of all time. This week's athlete is Richard Sherman, the best corner of the past decade. Sherman was drafted 154th overall in the fifth round of the 2011 NFL Draft from Stanford University by the Seattle Seahawks. While at Stanford, he played wide receiver and cornerback. Once he took the field for the Seahawks in 2011, it was evident that Sherman was going to be special. He was the face of the legendary Super Bowl winning defense, the Legion of Boom. I can attest to that. I had to watch him tip away a ball to go to the Super Bowl against my favorite team. Sherman has accounted for five All-Pro honors, five Pro Bowls, and is a member of the 2010 All-Decade team. He's been a lockdown corner for the Seahawks and the San Francisco 49ers. The 33-year-old cornerback is currently an NFL free agent likely to sign after the NFL draft next week. And if you did check us out on social media, this week's photo was an autographed jersey of Richard Sherman, which he signed for me this past two years ago after they beat the Cincinnati Bengals in a blowout victory in Cincinnati. So we have one more week left of our best draft picks of all time. Check out social media next week as we will give you an opportunity to be the one to guess who that athlete will be. And if you are, you will get a shout out on the show as well as tagged in our story. So be on the lookout for that. Now we're going to hop right into some NBA talk here. And the first thing we're going to get into tonight is Kevin Durant. He came back from a long-term injury and now he's injured again. And this is more of a strain, I do believe. But are you worried that we're not going to see Kevin Durant consistently play at all this season? Yeah, that's that's definitely a worry. He's been out for most of this season, hasn't really played much. The previous season didn't play. It's been a while since we've actually seen Kevin Durant play organized baseball or basketball. Sorry, my brain's on baseball. Organized basketball on television. It's and that's worrisome. He can still be a very talented player, but when you've been off for so long, how how well are you going to come back? Yeah, you're exactly right. I'm worried about Durant. He's getting older in age now, 32 years old, and you look at what he had to go through in Golden State with the injury there, then he finally takes a year off, comes back this year, and has dealt with injuries the whole entire season. He was on a limited minutes for a while there, started to get back into a stride where he was playing quite a few minutes. He got up to 30 minutes at one point, but he's still not getting that time that you want from Kevin Durant. And if you're a Nets fan, the Nets for me right now have the team that has a real opportunity to win it all. 
I think they have the best overall roster in the NBA right now, especially with their big three. But their big three is not playing. And you look at now, it's just Kyrie Irving. And we've seen that all season long. It's just one of them. Or just Harden and Kyrie. That is worrisome for me. And that brings me into my next question here. Are the Nets in trouble with this big three? Not having a lot of play time together. And I know we've talked about it in the past. But it's a reoccurring issue and it doesn't look like it's getting better anytime soon. Does it make it even more scary for this Nets team going into the postseason? Yeah, it definitely does, in my opinion. They're, they haven't had any real meaningful playing time together. And chemistry is a really huge part of basketball. How well you work with your teammates and just working together to achieve the goal of either scoring or playing defense. And there are some big egos on that team. Kevin Durant, uh, Kyrie, and uh, Harden have all had some problems with either teammates or other players. And that the lack of chemistry they have, or the lack of time that they can build that chemistry on the court, is definitely a worry. Yeah, the only thing I think they have going for them is the fact that Kyrie, not Kyrie, excuse me, James Harden and Kevin Durant have played together before with the Thunder, and that was a long time ago. So it's not necessarily the same because James Harden's a different player. Kevin Durant's a far improved player. So is Harden, but Harden's just an all-around different player. He's like the guy on most teams now. So trying to get all three of them to play well together in the postseason, I think that's a big worry. I really do. You look at these big threes and they have the power struggle of who's going to be the one that takes the last shot. Who's going to be the guy that steps up in these big moments and is going to start being the one who's going to score the basketball. These guys aren't going to be the type that, oh yeah, we'll help set you up. They all want their points. So I think that's a really big question mark for this team going into the postseason. They do have the best team in the NBA, but they're hurt all the time. They're big three. Hasn't had time to get any chemistry with one another. It's just really worrisome. Also, LaMarcus Aldridge retired. So now they've lost another depth piece that they once had. It is, it's a big worry. And the Sixers are getting better. They are they already were right there with the Nets. They've beaten the Nets, and now they're kind of that number one seed. Um, they've taken it over. This team needs to find a way to stay healthy because if they can't, they're going to have issues come playoff time, especially if you get a team out of the West who is very, very good and has all the health. So the Nets need to figure out a way to get their guys on the court at the same time if they want to really make it far into this postseason. Next team we have here is the Lakers. Anthony Davis is expected to make his return tomorrow against the Dallas Mavericks. Anthony Davis coming back right now at this time. Do the Lakers have enough time to get back on top of the West, or are they just going to have to go in as a 5-6 seed? I think they have time to get back to a higher seed, but it's not too big a deal if they don't. What they need to do is just make sure you're not in the play-in tournament and try and get either that 4 or 5 seed, which is where they're standing right now. If they could run up to the 3 seed, that is, I think, the highest they can possibly go. That means they'd have to... uh, beat the Clippers for that seed, as well as the Nuggets. With the three seed, you're 
just you have a better opportunity to play someone who's not as good, whereas the four and five are pretty similar teams. Yeah, for me, I think, like you said, it's not it doesn't matter too much where they come in at because they're already, when you have Anthony Davis and LeBron on the court, probably the best team in the West, if not a top two team for sure. So I'm not worried about it, but I don't think they have enough time to really run up this Western standings here. Right now they're eight games back of first place, six games back of two and three. I don't know if there's enough time to catch up to a team like the Suns, the Jazz, the Clippers, who are very hot right now. When you look at the Nuggets, they've had to overcome losing Jamal Murray for this season, who we'll get into here in just a little bit. But in their last 10 games, they're 8-2. and two. The Lakers right now are only been 5-5 five and five in their last 10. I know Anthony Davis coming back, that's going to help them out a lot. But until they get AD and LeBron on the court at the same time, I don't think they have enough time to climb these standings. And I don't think they're worried about it, but they don't. There isn't enough time there. And you talked about where they're going to be at, who they could play. As long as they can find a way to not have to play um, a Clippers team, a Suns team, I think they'll be all right. The Nuggets at this point aren't a bad matchup, especially without Jamal Murray. I wouldn't say it's a bad matchup for them, but it's also not a team I'd love to have to play in the first round of the NBA playoffs. So... I don't think they have enough time, but now it's just about saving position and getting yourself a better matchup than you currently have. And now looking at this Lakers team, 5-5 five and five in their last 10, do you think they are a better team now since LeBron James and Anthony Davis have had to miss so much time? I think overall, the guys around Anthony Davis and LeBron James have elevated their game. And the addition of Andre Drummond is definitely helpful. But they're, those guys around LeBron and AD are better. But without those two, they're not going anywhere. They, they'd probably be the seventh seed in the West. They're a solid team, but you need those stars to win. That being said, they have elevated their game and really kind of risen to the opportunity and kept the Lakers in it with where they are in the standings without LeBron and AD, which is really a great thing that they've done. Yeah, for me, no, no, you don't want your superstars to get hurt. You don't want LeBron and AD out. But this team, in my opinion, is a lot better now than they were earlier in the year. These guys around them, around LeBron and AD, have had so much playing time. They now have, outside of LeBron and Anthony Davis, four scorers and double-digit points. If LeBron and AD had played most of the season, there's no way that they would have six scorers, including themselves, and double-digit points. There's no way. And you have KCP right there as well with 9.3 points a game. They just have players stepping up in big roles, and that's huge for this Lakers team because the Lakers, they looked good. But they were not near what we saw last season when AD and LeBron were out there. So it was all about getting these players to step up. And this team, yeah, they weren't the Lakers, you could say, because they were losing some games and they weren't that great. But Schroeder stepped up. Kuzma stepped up. KCP, Drummond, Mo Harrell, Mar Markeith Morris as well. All these guys now are very valuable role players. And instead of having to be the star, you could say, like Dennis Schroeder's had to do for most of this season, he can now step into that third scoring role 
And 15 points a game in the third scoring spot with two guys with 22, 25-plus points a game, that's scary. So this Lakers team, I think they're going to be better in the long run because of these injuries. Because LeBron and Anthony Davis, they don't have the Nets issue with the chemistry. They played together for a year. And they played together when Anthony Davis was younger for Team USA. Like They have chemistry. You don't have to worry about that. And the good thing is, LeBron has played 41 games this year. Anthony Davis, he's played 24, so you'd like a little bit more out of him. But it's not a big deal. They have a decent amount of playing time, a whole season worth of work Pat, last year. This team's going to be fine. I think they're going to be better because of those injuries to LeBron AD. You don't want them, obviously, but this team has got a lot better because of that. Now, looking at some players, come August, they're going to have a player option as to whether they're going to opt in or opt out and leave their current team. There's a few big-name players on this list, and we're going to go dive into them and tell you who we think is going to opt in, who we think is going to leave. The first up we have here is Kawhi Leonard of the LA Clippers. Do you think he'll opt in, or do you think he'll opt out? I think he's opting out. In my personal opinion, this is all conjecture, I think the Clippers are going to get bounced out of the playoffs earlier than they should, somewhere like probably second round, definitely earlier than the level of talent they've displayed so far, and Kawhi Leonard is going to leave. He doesn't want to, he wants to win, which isn't a bad thing, but that means he's probably going to opt out if the Clippers don't win a ring this year or if they don't go far into the playoffs. I think he's going to opt out. Yeah, for me, I agree. I think he's going to opt out, but I don't think he's going to leave. I think he'll opt out of that contract and just re-sign to a bigger deal. We saw Kevin Durant do that with the Warriors. Just a series of, it was a two-year deal, but the second year was a player option, and he would opt out and get a bigger money deal in year one and do the same thing. It doesn't really give you much security, but I think Kawhi Leonard's ready to kind of settle down a little bit with this Clippers team. I agree with you. I don't think the Clippers are as good as they always get cracked up to be. We saw the playoff performance they had last season, got beat by the Nuggets when they were leading in the series. And then this season, I don't I don't expect them to make a huge run. They might make the conference finals, but I don't expect them to represent the West with how strong it is right now. It could be really tough for them. But for me, what's what makes me think he'll stick around was when Kawhi Leonard hit free agency after the Raptors. When he wanted out of San Antonio, it was widely known that LA was a spot that he'd like to land with. They send him to the Raptors, and then he leaves after one year. He wins a championship in that one year, left. Why? Because I think his end goal was to end up in L.A. I think that's why we see him stick around there. He he finally found his way to the Clippers. Sure, did he want to be on the Lakers? Probably, but once they added LeBron and AD, that kind of answered that question for him that he was going to go elsewhere. So for me, I think he sticks around. I think he opts out, gets a bigger deal, and stays with the Clippers. Next up is the point god, Chris Paul. He has an opt-in or opt-out with the Suns after this year. I think he's going to opt-in, personally. Uh, He's 35, and the option is for $44 million. I don't think a reasonable person can pass up $44 million at 35. And I, he's, don't get me wrong, he's performing absolutely outstanding way above my expectations for him this year. But 
I don't think he's worth that much money. And on the open market, I don't think he's going to get paid that much. That being said, this this Suns team is very good, and I, I like what they're building there. And I think if he stays for that next season, they have a chance to add a couple pieces, add some depth, and really focus in on making a run if they don't already this season. Yeah, for me, it's tough. I, I'm going to say opts in as well, but I think it's a realistic possibility that we see him opt out and not because he wants to leave, but because he's going to come back on a more reasonable contract. He's still on that Rockets contract where he was paid a lot of money. So now he has, I think he gets an opportunity possibly to rework his deal and help the Suns out in the long run. They have Devin Booker. That's a guy they're going to want to keep around. And also they want to add to this team. But Chris Paul averaging 15.7 points, shooting almost 50% from the field. So when I look at that, I go, okay, not bad statistics, but that doesn't even begin to explain what he's done for this team. When he was with the Thunder, the Thunder were given, I believe it was like a 0.02% chance to make the postseason. He makes the postseason with them. You see Shea Gillis-Alexander develop into a guy who can say, this is my team. The Thunder are my team. I'm ready to take this team over. When I did predictions about where some free agents will go, some good spots, when Chris Paul was an option there of a team that I'd like to see him end up on, I chose the Suns as one of them just because I want to see him end up with Devin Booker, have an opportunity to see him develop, and that's exactly what he's done. He's been a great addition to this Suns team. They're doing a lot better than anyone thought they would do. I didn't expect this out of them. I thought they'd be good, and... I think everyone thought they'd be a lot better than they were the previous year because of that finish they had in the bubble. They didn't get in, but that finish was exciting, undefeated. And this Chris Paul move, I knew it would make them better, but Paul knows he's in a position where he can be successful. This is one of the better teams record-wise that he's ever been on. So I also believe that's going to be a reason why he'd want to come back. And I think at the end of the day, Chris Paul knows, like you said, 35 years old, Going to be 36, he knows that he can take a little bit less money and still be successful. So I expect to maybe see them rework a deal there. Keep him there, but also rework a deal so that he makes a little bit less and they can still build around. Next up, we have Net star Spencer Dinwiddie. Missed this season with a torn ACL. Do you think he'll opt in or opt out? I think he's going to opt in. I, I don't know why you would, unless there's a lot of locker room chaos that the Nets are doing a good job of hiding I think you opt in because that team is just so talented and you have you're you're not going to be the number one option you're not even going to be the number two option but you're going to be a solid player on a playoff team and a team that has one of the better chances to win the finals it, that's that's what the game is about, and choosing to go to a different team is, I think, not a logical choice for Spencer Dinwiddie. Yeah, I agree with you. He's going to opt in, but I will say there's a caveat to that. I don't think he sticks around with the Nets because I think with all the moves they made, they're going to have to probably look to get rid of him. And he'll want to opt in. He'll want to stick around for sure. I mean, who wouldn't? You're on the best team in basketball right now. You may not win at all, but roster-wise, you're on the best team in basketball. 
I would want to stick around, but can they afford all these guys? And the moves they'd have to make, Spencer Dinwiddie, he was a guy that stepped up big for the Nets in past years, especially their little playoff run they went on a few seasons ago with D'Angelo Russell. Averaged 20.6 points a game in that season. He's a guy that, in my opinion, on the right teams, a number two scoring guy. On this team, he'd be four, five on within that scoring rotation. I just don't know realistically if the Nets can pay him with their big three and still have any type of bench whatsoever. Right now, they have like a decent one with some of these veterans that are coming in on these vet minimums, but that's not going to last forever. You're not going to be able to keep that type of team around. So for me, I think he'll opt in, but I just don't know if the Nets are going to be able to keep him um, going into next season. Next player we have here is Norman Powell. Do you think he'll opt in or opt out? I think he's going to opt out. The situation he's in is not ideal. I think he he just kind of wants, in in my opinion, the the Blazers aren't really where a team wants to be. They're in that kind of that no man's land of, yeah, we're kind of competing. We make the playoffs as a low seed, but they never really do all that much. They don't cause any noise or make any noise in the playoffs. So I think you can get paid somewhere else and have a better chance of winning a ring. So I think he opts out. Yeah, for me, it would make realistic sense to opt out there and head to a different team. I think he's going to opt in. I think he opts in because he knows that when you look at this team for the Blazers, they do need work. 100% agree with that. They have a lot that they could work on, but they do have one of the best players in the NBA, a point guard in Damian Lillard. CJ McCollum, he is a decent two guard for them, but that team needs some more work, and I think Norman Powell knows that it's going in the right direction. Norman Powell, in my opinion, was one of the pieces that, okay, that helps your team out. Is it necessarily a huge signing, like, oh, this is going to send them over the top? No. Absolutely not. But he's a key piece moving forward. The Blazers are going this real slow building approach that I necessarily probably would not do, especially with Damian Lillard and the type of basketball he's playing right now. But I see what they're trying to do here. They're adding in key pieces, and I think Powell's one of those pieces. So if they lost him, that would hurt them a lot. So I think he opts in, and finally you see the Blazers make a move, get a big man that's going to help this team out. They tried to bring in Hassan Whiteside. He was supposed to be, he got the big contract after his good years with the Heat, and he just really did not work out for him whatsoever. So they're still in search of that guy. And also, it's tough to bring free agents to Portland in the NBA. If if Damian Lillard's not enough of a selling point, I really don't know what is. So I would definitely be, if I'm Portland, doing everything I can to keep Norman Powell around. Because like I said, he's not a guy that's going to turn your team around. But he's a nice piece to have when you have Damian Lillard, C.J. McCollum, and the rest of that team. I'm, I'm excited to see what they do moving forward because I really want to see Damian Lillard in the postseason consistently and getting deep into the postseason. In just my short NBA career watching the league, he's had some of the biggest playoff shots that I remember. His game winner against the Thunder, his game winner against the Rockets. It just seems like every year he's got a shot and you're like, holy cow, what a play. So I really hope they find a way to keep him around. Next up is Montrez Harrell of the Lakers. 
They stole him away from the Clippers last year. Now he has an opportunity to opt in or opt out. What do you think he will do? I think he's going to opt out. He's getting paid a little under $10 million a year, and I think he deserves a little more than that, as well as he hasn't really performed as well as he did last year and the year before on... He, he's not performing as well on the Lakers compared to how he performed on the Clippers. His scoring's down, rebounding's down a little, and just he's, he's never been a very good uh, defender. So I think he just doesn't really mesh all that well with the Lakers and kind of the style of basketball they want to play. That's not really a shot at him. It's just they don't work together all that well, in my opinion. And he could probably go somewhere else and get more money. So I think that's what he's going to end up doing. Yeah, I'm with you. I think he opts out as well. If he doesn't opt out, I think the Lakers move on from him. He's underperformed this season. And when you look at his stats, you go, oh, well, he's averaging more than his career average. Yeah, but with this Lakers team, when they brought him in, they expected him to be a legit option for this team. And he just hasn't been that. I think that's the reason you saw the Clippers let him go was because he wasn't that legit option down the stretch. He was the face. Him and Patrick Beverly were the face of that underdog Clippers team the year before they got Kawhi Leonard and Paul George when they took the Warriors the distance and Patrick Beverly um, and Kevin Durant were going at it. Those two were the face of that series and taking the Warriors, the best team in the league, the distance. No one else could do it. But then they kind of they were supposed to be the two not necessarily to lead that team, but they were two very good pieces when you got these stars there. I know that's one thing I said over and over is they need just a couple stars, and they have all this amazing depth. Patrick Beverly has dropped off his play a lot, and not to say that he was ever really that great, but he's really gone on a landslide. And Mo Harrell's another guy that he was really exciting to watch, and he just slowly decreased that level of play. So I think the Lakers... The Lakers brought in a few of these veteran guys, like Mo Harrell, Marcus Saul, and some other guys. I, and Wesley Matthews is another one. That I just don't imagine them bringing them back. That's cap space that they want to put to someone who can really help this team out. And I did think that Mo Harrell was going to be that guy. He just hasn't been. And that's not a shot at him at all. It just didn't work out between those two teams. And the last opt-in or opt-out we have here tonight is Serge Ibaka. Do you think he'll opt-in or opt-out? I think he's opting-in. Making around nine million a year or around ten million, I think he could be making more, but he's in a pretty solid situation on the Clippers. Really, it depends if Kawhi opts in or opts out, and how that, how much of the team is kept together for next season. But right now, he's taken kind of a step back, not talent-wise. But the role that he's playing, he's more of a floor spacer, not asked to do as much as he was in Toronto. And I think that's a pretty good role for him. He's not had to been, be like a huge player on a team, and I think that's where he thrives. He's still able to space the floor, block shots. He's just more mobile now, and if he if I think 
right now it's a steal that the Clippers are getting him for $9 million, but I think he enjoys playing for the Clippers, so he's going to opt in. Yeah, Serge Ibaka is a guy a little bit older now at this point in his career. It's time to hit for him just to win some more championships. He won the one with the Raptors. Now you're on the Clippers, who we talked about we don't expect them to win the championship this year, but are going to be around the championship as long as Paul George and Kawhi are there. So, yeah, I'm with you. Opt in on that. And the one thing you look at, oh, he's scoring 10.9 points a game. That's a very valuable piece in your rotation scoring-wise. Yeah, he's a really, he does a good job being a role player. But for me, what sticks out is he's a very good defender. He's a three-time All-Defensive Player of the Year and also is a two-time block champion. So this is a guy that's going to make a lot of plays defensively for you. And in key stretches of the game, you can trust him on both sides of the ball. You, there's not a lot of teams that have a veteran, savvy guy with experience in the postseason that they can trust on both ends of the court late in the postseason. But the Clippers have that, and they have Kawhi Leonard, another guy who you trust on both ends of the court. When you have both of those guys on this, the court at the same time, you know defensively you're doing well. And also, we've seen, we've seen Ibaka go to the Clippers now, just like Kawhi Leonard left the Raptors, come to the Clippers there's obviously a relationship there between Kawhi and Serge Ibaka that I think is going to keep him around. And he'll know if he's leaving or not. He'll probably be one of the first people that knows. So for me, I think he opts in on that. And we see him with the Clippers again next season. We're going to take our first break here on Sportsmanlike Conduct. When we come back, we're going to finish up our NBA talk here. Steph Curry is on fire and get into Jamal Murray's injury. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back into Unsportsmanlike Conduct on KALA HD2 and the 106.1 FM dial. I'm Logan Howell. With me is David Meyer, as always. And we're going to go ahead and finish up our NBA talk here. Steph Curry has been on an absolute tear the last few games, averaging the last 11 games, averaging almost 40 points a game. And he's really carrying this Warriors team. David, my question to you is, are we sleeping on this Warriors team and Steph Curry playing this great? No, I don't think so. He's been absolutely dominant. There's no doubt about that. Right now, in the last 10 games, he's hitting 50% of his threes, which is just ridiculous. But he can't keep that up. There's just... it. It's not possible. And if he does, that's that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> but... I don't I don't think it's realistically possible for him to keep shooting this well. Even if he is one of the best shooters of all time, nobody's ever going to make 50% of their threes. It just it, it isn't going to happen and the team around him isn't good enough to it, it they're not good enough to allow him to not be that like god level player right now. That's the reason The reason why they're winning is because he's going out of his mind. Yeah, it's interesting. I think we're sleeping on them in a sense. Not that I think they're going to run their way to the finals again like we've seen the Warriors do. But Steph Curry is doing something that a lot of people have really dogged him for. They've said he can't carry a team. He can't be that guy who gets his team going. And He's done that. The Warriors were going down a very ugly path. And now in the last 10, they're 6-4, and four, and he's gotten them out to 500. Just two games back from getting into the postseason, this team 
is scary in the sense that Steph Curry is the greatest shooter of all time. Like you said, he's not going to keep up this stretch, but I think even just 30 points a night from Steph Curry, which is very capable of a guy like him, because he literally can just pull up from anywhere on the court, and when you can do that, you're destined to score 30 a night. I think the Warriors right now, this is why I say we're sleeping on them, they're in the ninth seed. I look at the eighth seed, the Grizzlies. They're at 29-27 right now. Steph Curry and the Warriors, I would be more afraid to have to play than Ja and the Grizzlies at this point if I was the Jazz. Not saying the Jazz struggle with either of them, but I would be more worried about Steph Curry because I know what he can do. Get into a series and he gets on fire like this, It's they're a very hard team to beat. I don't care how bad the team is around him. And Draymond's a key piece in that, just the facilitator. He kind of helps set that offense up and set up the other guys. Steph does his thing, Draymond gets the other guys going. The seventh seed, the Dallas Mavericks. Luka and Chris Stops are one of the best duos in the NBA. But right now they just sit at 30 and 26. They've lost the last two. They're an exciting team. So, and right now, the, this Warriors team and that Mavericks team, I would say they're pretty equal in terms of who I'd rather not play because Luka on any given night can go off as well, but not quite like Steph Curry can, just at ease. And then the Blazers at the sixth seed, I'd be far and away more scared of Steph Curry and the Warriors, and that's not a shot at Damian Lillard because I love Damian Lillard, but it's Steph Curry. It is. He's playing phenomenal basketball. He's going to have to make an excellent finish to the season here to get into the postseason. But once they get in and you just have your hat in the ring, an opportunity to make a run, that's when the Warriors are going to be at their scariest, in my opinion. So out of these last three seeds to get in, I think the Warriors are equally as good, if not scarier, than those three. So for me, I think we are sleeping on them a little bit. They're definitely not the ninth best team in the West. I think they're better than that, and now they just have to go prove that. Steph's dealt with injury this year. They missed him in some games, and now he's finally starting to go off. And we talked about this historic run Steph Curry's going on right now. Do you think that if he can keep this up to finish the year, or even some shell of this to finish the year, that he should be named the MVP? I think so. Just the the percentages and his efficiency with the volume of shots he's taking, is incredible. The only person I could possibly put next to him is Nikola Jokic, only because Jokic is in the top 10 in points per game, rebounds per game, and assists per game. That's It's the versatility that Jokic gives you. Stephen Curry is one one of the best scorers, probably... In this stretch of 10 games, the best scorer in the league by far. If he can keep it up, he would be my MVP. Yeah, I I think it's interesting. You brought up a very good point. There's not one clear MVP right now. It was Embiid for a little bit. It was LeBron James for a little bit. I said Jokic last week. He's a guy that I thought should win it. And Steph Curry, what he's doing, he also, he entered his hat in the ring. Averaging 31.5 points this season. And it's interesting, we're talking about Steph Curry and this tear he's on. Right now, the Wizards are playing the Warriors. They're in the third quarter. Currently, the Wizards lead by one, and Steph Curry is shooting two of 12 in this game, only four points. So we are starting to see him come down a little bit. But right now, he's 0 of 6 from 3 with four points in the third quarter. 
I would not be shocked to see Curry end up with 25 or close to 30 points in this ball game because he just goes off for a fury of threes, and that's exactly what I expect to happen. I expect him to come out on top in this game. But for me, Steph Curry, if he could finish this year even remotely close to what he's done, I think he has a very good case. I think he is. I think he's the MVP. And it's because it's such a weird year. There's not really anyone who stepped up. Giannis, Giannis is still a very good player, but it's not like, okay, Giannis is for sure going to win again. There's not James Harden absolutely going off. LeBron James, LeBron James is the guy, it's kind of like Mike Trout. I mean, he could win it every single year realistically, but are you going to give it to him every single year? No. So for me, I think this is it. I think this is the year Curry can win that MVP, and I think that's big for his career. A lot of people have doubted what he can do and what he can do without Clay, without Kevin Durant. Here's his opportunity, and I think he's absolutely taking advantage of it. He's been a phenomenal player. And now an injury that happened a couple weeks ago that we did not get into. Jamal Murray tears his ACL. How big of a loss is that for the Nuggets? It's a pretty big loss. He's one of one of the best players on that team besides Jokic. I'd say he's probably the best player on that team. And just looking at the on-off numbers... When he's on the court, the team is just so much better. Offensively, defensively, he makes that team better. And when you lose a guy who, on both sides of the ball, is making your team better, it's you're going to be challenged. It's, it's going to be a tough time, but I think the, uh, the Nuggets still have a decent chance in the West. Yeah, I like their chances. I think they're 8-2 in their last 10. They're still playing good basketball. And one key piece that's not going to get talked about a whole lot, but I think is going to help this team out, was the Aaron Gordon trade. They didn't know Jamal Murray's going to be hurt, but adding Aaron Gordon to your team is a massive help. And the one good thing that the that they have going for them, and they did last postseason as well, is while you hear about Jokic, you hear about Murray, those are the scores. Those are the guys that take over these basketball games. They still have Will Barton, Michael Porter Jr., Gary Harris, and Aaron Gordon coming off the bench, averaging over 10 points, if not very close to over 10 points a game, some at 17 points a game with Gary Harris. This team, I think they're going to be fine. I really do. I think they'll be okay. Having Murray out there, is that a gigantic help? Yes, because he is phenomenal, especially last postseason. He was just making shots left and right, and he had to come back in every single series. I think it was two, three, one leads he came back from and then was down to the Lakers and almost brought them back as well. He is just a phenomenal scorer. He's also a great facilitator, and he opens everything up for Jokic, in my opinion. When Murray's out there, it helps Jokic out. He's averaging 26 points a game this season. So, yeah, they're going to miss Murray, but this team can still float, and I still think they have to be one of the favorites to win the West. And now looking at this injury, an ACL injury, not always easy to come back from. Almost never easy to come back from. And some players never come back the same. Are you worried that we may not see the same Jamal Murray again? Yeah, anytime you tear any major ligament in your knee, it can hurt the amount of overall just speed and athleticism you have. And also that kind of quick turnaround, those uh, like stutter steps kind of jukes essentially. Stopping and starting is a lot harder to do, and you're not 
uh, quite as good at that. And that's definitely a worry. It, I don't think it's going to destroy his career. I think the way science and medicine is right now is a lot better than it was just five, ten years ago. So guys can come back from ACL tears, and they have. The, I think the worst-case scenario for him is Derrick Rose. Uh, Rose has put together a career kind of after what we saw when he was younger, but just not playing this year. Or Jamal Murray just sitting out for the rest of this year, gets injured next year, maybe the year after that. That's the worst-case scenario. If he can just come back strong next year and honestly take a little bit of a step back, not do too much, and stay healthy, he's going to have a fine career. Yeah, for me, the thing about Jamal Murray is, and you compare him to Derrick Rose, and that was exactly where I was going to go with it too. Derrick Rose, when you looked at what made him a great basketball player, it wasn't necessarily his shooting. He was more known for his, his athletic ability, his crazy dunks, and just kind of that he was really kind of careless, not careless, you could say, but he was a guy who jumped around a lot. And he made all these big athletic plays that when you saw it, the awkward landings, things like that, like that's not great. It's not something you want to see. It could lead to knee injuries like Dwayne Wade, a guy who dealt with knee injuries, not ACL, but other knee injuries the rest of his career. And then Derrick Rose, that was his game. So when he tore his ACL, had to adapt, it took him a little bit to adapt and change his game from that and he's done a decent job of it. He's still a valuable role player on most teams. But Jamal Murray's not like that. He's a shooter. He's a guy, it's, he has a good three-point shot. Mid-range is also phenomenal. That's where his game really lies. He's not as careless with his body. So I don't expect it to, it to affect him as much just because of that factor. But you obviously, it's something you have to look at anytime you do see a point guard go down like that. I think Derrick Rose is instantly where everyone's head goes on that. Now we're going to move into some MLB. We're going to go through some teams that have got out to a slow start that we thought would get out to a little bit better of a start. And we're going to say, is it time to hit the panic button or is it a long season? You'll be okay. First team is the Yankees, currently at 6-10. and 10. You hitting the panic button or do they still have time? Overall, I think all these teams really do have time, but the hot takes are just, they're too hot to not. Um, I'd be hitting the panic button a little bit. You didn't have a great season last year. It was okay in 60 games, but not where you wanted to be. And you're spending a lot of guy, or a lot of money to get these guys on the field, and they're injured most of the time. That's a worry. They've been relatively healthy this year. And they're still six and ten. They just—it's just not there. It's—they're not scoring. They're not. Their pitching hasn't been great. They need to just turn things around. And it's only sixteen games into the season right now, so I think they have time for that. But wow, they're a tenth of the way through the season. That's crazy. Um, I think they have time to turn it around, but. It's it's not good. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm hitting the panic button on the Yankees as well. They're out statistically to their worst start in a long time in nearly every category right now. They're not hitting the ball well. Their pitching hasn't been all that great. Yeah, they brought in Odor, who hit the walk-off in his first game there. That was kind of exciting. He added to the list of Yankees to do that. 
But this Yankees team is struggling. You talked about the injuries they went through last year. I've been a fan, not a fan of the Yankees, but I've been saying, okay, I'm buying into the hype. Last year they got injured. Okay, we'll do it again this year. And now I'm here with the Yankees, and they're healthy and just struggling. Yes, there's plenty of season left, but this is very worrisome to get out to this type of start, especially when you were expected to be one of the best teams, and right now you're one of the worst teams in the league. You even have a worse record than some of the most struggling teams. The Nationals, I believe they started out like 1-6, and 1-7, and seven, and they have a better record right now than the Yankees. So the Nationals have started to turn it around, and they're a team we'll get into in a little bit. Why haven't the Yankees started to find that direction? I guess we'll just have to wait and see on this season, but for me, I'm hitting the panic button. They have to get going at some point. Those injuries don't give them time to build this team up and really get going and get a hot streak going. So if they get hit with the injury bug at some point this year, they could really be in trouble. Next team we have here is the White Sox. Had a fantastic year last year. Started out a little slow, but now they're out to a 500 record at 9-9. and You hitting the panic button on them, or do they still have a lot of time left? I think they have a lot of time. We've seen them have good games and some really bad ones, specifically that Lucas Giolito game, uh, which we'll we'll talk about a little later. Um, But it's just... I think adjusting to a new manager who I'm not sure if he if uh he was the correct choice there. Their pitching hasn't been fantastic. Uh overall team whip is 124, which is a little below uh the league average. So, I think they're going to be okay in the long run, but it's that does bring some doubts. Yeah, for me, I'm not hitting the panic button yet because they are second in their division right now. So they're still doing fine. They're staying afloat. But some of these big-name guys from last season that really performed, we haven't seen necessarily do that same thing this season. One injury that they've had this year is the Eloy injury, and they're not supposed to get him back until August. So that, that was a big hit for them in general. But I think you still have these big some of these bigger players playing well and I think you'll be okay they can get you through you obviously have started to catch a little bit of a stride you're starting to do better than you were I think they'll be fine second in the division I can't hit the panic button on that because you still are in a great position to make the postseason and you do have some star players on this team let's just catch a rhythm let's just get going it's not like the Yankees where you're not really sitting in a good position in your division and you're also a very known team to get injured so, for me, I think they'll be okay, especially the fact that now they're out to 500. Next team we have here is the Washington Nationals. They're a record of 7-9. and nine. You hitting the panic button on them, or do they have time? I'm going to hit the panic button on this one. They've, they're just struggling all over. A lot of these teams are, but right now they can't. Their pitching is just not there. It's just not showing up, and... You you get the bats that are obviously Juan Soto's just going to be a crazy good player, but Max Scherzer's thirty nine. Uh, Strasburg has struggled with injuries. John Lester is also he hasn't really turned it on yet. Trey Turner is playing fantastic, and I think he's he's going to be a very valuable guy down the stretch, but 
their pitching is just not good, and they need to turn that around quickly. Yeah, for me, it was tough. I'm not going to hit the panic button yet. I was very worried about this team. They got out to, I think it was the 1-6, 1-7 start. But in their last 10 games, they've managed to get out to a 6-4 and four record in their last 10. That's giving me a little bit of hope that maybe these veteran guys can put together that good season. You're talking about these guys and their age. And that is something, if you're a Nationals fan, you really need to be worried about. But I just think they can still turn on a little bit to make a, a little bit of a run here. Within their division, you look at a team like the Braves. They currently have a better record than and a lot of people expect the Braves to really be kind of the best team in this division. Right now, it's about catching the Phillies. It's about catching the Mets. So for me, I'm not going to hit the panic button yet. In these last 10 games, I've seen enough to say, okay, you make it another week. But I don't, they may not like make it that much longer. Next team we have here is the Chicago Cubs. And this is our last team of our panic button. Chicago Cubs out to a 7-9 and nine start, last in their division right now. You hitting the panic button. I want to. I want to. But I'm not going to. Because of one statistic. Right now, the Cubs, uh, if you... It's, it's all about batting average on balls in play. Or BABIP. Right now, they are the worst team in the league in BABIP. And that's basically kind of a luck stat how often are your hits in play and how often are the balls in play going for hits and the overall just general consensus average for a normal just everything is 300 they're the worst team at 227 that's they can't be that bad for an entire 162 games. They can't be that unlucky. Oh, God, the Cubs are really unlucky, though. That's, oh, no. That's not a good thing to say. That being said, I was reading an article. I can't remember where it's from. One of the reasons the Cubs' bats are struggling is because they're all very similar. They're guys who want to hit the ball out of the ballpark right away and the pitch they want is down. So pitchers have just been throwing them up in and inside in the zone, and they're just not able to hit the ball there. And that's getting pitched up and in, I think is a large reason for why they're one of the teams leading the league in hit-by-pitches. Yeah, they're second. So I think that's going to change. It's just... How long into the season is that going to change? Yeah, for me, I'm hitting the panic button on the Cubs. I still think they have what it takes to get things turned around, but I am very worried at this point. Pitching-wise, it's not been great. Uh, Kyle Hendricks, just the other night, he had a rough couple innings at it. And the thing about this Cubs team that makes me worry the most is just inconsistency in my opinion. That's really what I'm worried about the most. You look at this series that they had against the Braves. They lost 5-2. Then they win 13-4. Then they lose 13-4. This team just has to find a way to start winning games consistently. 4-6 and six in the last 10. The bats haven't been going all that great. Their star players 
have not really performed to their level quite yet. And I feel like that's something we've talked about with this Cubs team for the last few years is when are these guys going to start performing like we're used to them doing. So for me, I'm hitting the panic button because I think this has been a kind of a long time coming that we're all starting to finally realize maybe they're not going to turn the corner. Maybe they this is this team and we're going to see changes this offseason. So for me... If they can fix the consistency, they'll be okay, but I am worried that they're not going to be able to. So I'm hitting the panic button on them as of right now. So the next topic we have here is, we talked. I talked about that Braves-Cubs series. Ronald Cunha got hurt against the Cubs. It was a lower body injury. And so the Braves are finally starting to catch a little bit of a stride. Had a good series against the Cubs. Do you think that if they were to miss time without him, even if he's not missing time right now, some point in the season that they could get through that with the currently how they're playing? I think so. They have just a lot of a lot of talent on that roster as a whole. He is really the catalyst for that. When he goes, they go. But I think it's possible that they find someone else you have Freddie Freeman, you have Ozzy Alwes, you have uh, Dansby Swanson, and uh, Christian Pache, I believe I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, but I'm trying my best, um, in the minor leagues, who's one of the best defensive center fielders right now, and you can call him up if there is an injury and you want to go that route. It's just, can... How long will he be out? This injury isn't going to be too bad, but it seems like they could sustain this team's success without him for a period of time. Yeah, I think they could get by for a little bit, but I am worried about this Braves team in terms of getting by without him. He's their best player, and when you look at the rest of this team, some of these guys aren't really performing to what we expect them. Freddie Freeman hasn't had a great start to the season. And he's a guy you normally expect to be one of the best players in the league, one of those top guys. So for me, they can sustain a little bit here. And they did avoid the uh, major injury with Acuna. They were worried about it. But they did avoid the major injury. And if they were to miss him later in the season, I think that's really when you'd see them start to struggle without him. They'll be okay right now if he had to miss a couple games. But later in the year, when the season's on the line, missing him, that's when you'd really start to be like, okay, this is tough, and I don't know if they're going to be able to get through that. So they should be okay for right now. Right now, currently leading the Yankees 3 to nothing in the bottom of the seventh. So let's see if they can hold on to win that game. We're going to take our next break here on Sportsman Like Conduct. When we come back, we have some more MLB news for you. The MLB upheld Cristiano's suspension when he flexed at home plate. We'll have that and more. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back into In Sportsmanlike Conduct on KALA HD2 and the 106.1 FM dial. I'm Logan Howell. With me, as always, is David Meyer. And as we enter this last hour of the show, we're going to finish up our MLB talk here. And we have the MLB handed down a suspension to Nick Castellanos after he scored a run and he flexed at home plate by the Cardinals players. And they took offense to it. It led to kind of a little scuffle between the two teams. And he appealed the suspension, but it was upheld. Do you agree with the MLB upholding the suspension? No, I don't. Uh, It's 
it's really not a good look for the MLB at all. They're the owners and management and the league office itself is always complaining about, oh, viewership's down, the league is kind of going downhill, people aren't watching it, what can we do to make this more enjoyable? Let guys show emotion, let guys have fun. That's He was showing emotion like, yeah, I just scored a run, we're, we're up now. He didn't make like a violent move towards the pitcher, he didn't punch anyone. Yeah, there's some emotion there. You don't want to give up a run if you're the Cardinals. But he didn't start it. So I don't see why he's suspended. Yeah, no, I really don't either. And I don't get it because it's something that it's just emotion. It's raw emotion. It's sports. I mean, these guys have been playing this their whole entire life. And anyone that's played sports for any period in their career knows that when you make a big play, you instantly want to celebrate, especially when it's kind of a rival team. Castellanos has been around the Cardinals for a little bit. He spent some time with the Cubs, so now still within the division. It's a rival. He's showing emotion. Let him have fun. That's the thing I've never understood about some sports. You have, like the NFL, for example, taking away touchdown celebrations. I know some people don't like touchdown celebrations, but I'm a huge fan of it, especially when they're creative. There's been some really good ones. There's been some really bad ones that just are, I mean, just bad. I don't really understand how, like, what they're doing, and you can't tell what they're celebrating for. But there's other ones that are really good. So for me, I don't like that suspension whatsoever. And I thought when he appealed it that he would, it would get uh, overturned. It would be all right. But the fact that it upheld it, I found very, very surprising. But I'm not the MLB, so that call is not on me. And now we're going to move into a new segment starting this week, and it's David's Disaster Debrief. David's going to go over a couple disasters from this past week's games and explain why that kind of happened and what they should have done. David? All right, so our first disaster, Lucas Giolito, a couple days ago, just an abysmal start. Only goes one inning, technically one inning, only got three outs. Went out there for the second, but got pulled before he could make another out. It took him 46 pitches, faced 11 batters to get through that first inning. Gave up seven hits, one walk, and six runs, uh, including a leadoff home run to start the game. Just couldn't locate his pitches. That's going to happen sometimes. He was, He's kind of an interesting player. He likes to go to that high changeup which you don't see all that often. But if the deception on that changeup isn't there, if it doesn't come out of your hand looking like a high fastball, it's just going to get obliterated every time. And the deception wasn't there today. Uh, But I think he's going to bounce back pretty well. For me, he's still my Cy Young candidate. What what do you think about him? Yeah, I, I think he'll be fine, like you said. But I do, I think that's a great one. I agree. That's a great disaster to start out with because it doesn't get much worse than that in terms of first innings. And that's the thing for pitchers. You want to get into a rhythm early on. Giving up the leadoff home run instantly kind of is like, okay, I'm not going to be able to get a rhythm tonight. And it's going to be a rough night. And to overcome that, it would have been impressive. But he didn't. And it happens to the best pitchers in the league. They all have some games where it's a little bit off. But like you said, I expect him to bounce back. He's still a good pitcher. He'll be all right. 
And now for your final disaster, what is that? All right, it's uh, yesterday's game, Arizona versus versus Cincinnati, top of the eighth, tie game four to four. Uh, Amir Garrett comes in uh, at the top of the eighth. I'm sorry. Yeah, I said that. Um, gets one out, then walks a guy. A double is given up, so it's second and third. Gets an out, and they take out Amir Garrett to put in uh, Lucas Sims, and it's just a terrible game weather-wise. It's borderline snowing. It's an absolute downpour of the nastiest kind of weather that sleet. It actually kind of hurts when it hits you. It's just, it's the worst. So he goes out there, and it's obvious he doesn't have control. And not in a way that's any shame to him. It's just, it's cold, your hand is freezing, you can't get the pressure you want on the ball. You probably can't really feel it all that much. And he hits the first batter, so loads the bases, and then walks the next guy to, walks Carson Kelly, and that scores a runner. And uh, the Reds are down 5-4. to four. And finally after that, he just kind of, every time his catcher throws him a ball for the next pitch, he just throws it back to the dugout, not using that one. And they finally call the game. They, it, it's way too late. You, you called it way too late. The damage was already done. They did play out the rest of that game today. It ended 5-4. to four, But the refs, or the umpires just have to do better. What what would you have done in that situation? It it's tough. You have to get them off the off the diamond in that situation, and it reminds me of something that happened earlier this year with Stroman with the Mets. He goes out there, throws a couple pitches, and all of a sudden they canceled the game. And it was pouring down rain. And he was very upset that he even had to go out there. The, you have you look at these umps. They just have to do a better job of getting out of those positions because obviously you want the best performance from your players, and also you look at it. It was in such an important time in the game where it was really big. I just definitely, I wouldn't not put him in that situation, especially when you saw the clear frustration from the pitcher as well. Definitely would have got out of that situation. And that was this week's David's Disaster Debrief. Now we're going to move into some NFL topics. And one that we're going to start out with here, Alex Smith, former quarterback of the Washington football team, retires after a very inspirational career that Alex Smith had at the age of 36 years old. Looking back at his career, it's an interesting one. You look at his high school years, he was actually high school teammates with Reggie Bush, who in college beat him out for the 2004 Heisman when Alex Smith was a finalist for that award as well. Had one of the best football, the college football careers ever at Utah under Urban Meyer he had a 21-1 and record during his time there. Then he goes on to become the number one overall pick by the San Francisco 49ers. And that's actually interesting when you look at the dynamic because a lot of people talk about Rodgers, who went later. The 49ers offensive coordinator at the time was Mike McCarthy. He told Aaron Rodgers, we're going to take you number one overall. Mike Nolan, the head coach, and the general manager at the time, the night of the draft decided they're going to go with Alex Smith. That's their guy. And that's where the animosity comes from between Aaron Rodgers and the 49ers. 
And interesting enough, Mike McCarthy goes on to coach the Green Bay Packers, who are led by Aaron Rodgers. Wins a Super Bowl with them as well. In San Francisco, did not get out to a good start at all. He dealt with injuries, bad play, and everything pointed to his exit from San Francisco in 2010. But they bring in Jim Harbaugh. And Jim Harbaugh says Alex Smith will be our quarterback. They drafted their quarterback the future in the second round. But we're going to roll with Alex Smith. Alex Smith goes on to have, one, at the time, his best season in the NFL. Then the fall, where he goes to the NFC Championship game and loses there to the Giants, the eventual Super Bowl champions. Then Alex Smith, the following year, gets out to one of his best starts in, his, in a season for himself. Gets a concussion against the Rams. Colin Kaepernick comes in, and I think you know the rest there. Colin Kaepernick takes the NFL by storm, wins breakout athlete of the year, and he never gets that job back. He gets traded to the Kansas City Chiefs. With the Chiefs, he gets them to the playoffs five times in his career there, and they also move up in the first round to take a quarterback. That quarterback just happened to be Patrick Mahomes, who is one of the best, if not the best, quarterback in the NFL right now. They then, after a season of of Mahomes sitting under Alex Smith, move on from Alex Smith, trade him to the Washington football team where he has a 6-3 and record before he has one of the most gruesome leg injuries in NFL history. Oddly enough, on the same date, just years, many years later, after Joe Theismann broke his leg on Monday Night Football when Lawrence Taylor tackled him, Alex Smith has the same type of injury. Alex Smith went through a very, very crazy rehab process, had 17 different surgeries. There was a couple different times they thought he might not be able to live through this because the leg was getting infected. He was dealing with a lot. Football was the last thing on Alex Smith's mind. He found a way to get through it. With his rehab, he actually had to go to special military doctors to rehab his leg because they had to use the same doctors that help people who get hit by grenades in the military. That's how serious this leg injury was. And then he does the improbable. Comes back from the injury, plays in six games for the football team, leads them to a 5-1 and record, including a win over the undefeated Pittsburgh Steelers, and gets them into the postseason. Alex Smith, after the season, Mold over a couple different offers he had, one of which was from his former college coach, Urban Meyer. He then decided to retire at the age of 36 and after his, you could say, pretty good NFL career. He defied the odds that were placed in front of him, being the number one overall pick, being called a bust, to turn in a very, very good career for most quarterbacks, especially first round QBs. When you look at this story of Alex Smith and all he had to go through with the leg injury, do you think that's the greatest comeback story in NFL history? I think so. I can't think of any worse injury than that. There was Ryan Shazier, but he, like the fact that he's walking and can run is a huge thing, but he never got back on the field. So. Just the amount of terrible things that can happen with that surgery. And necrotizing fasciitis, which is that flesh-eating bacteria, is just so nasty and really uh, just 
obviously flesh-eating bacteria is a bad time to have. Um, but surgical infections aren't good, and that one's especially nasty. But the ability to play it all after that is incredible. Yeah, I, I agree. It's the greatest comeback story in NFL history. When you look at all he had to go through, I would highly recommend watching the E60 they made about him. It really opens your eyes as to how much he had to go through to play football once again. And one quote in there that stuck out to me was he said that in his rehab process, right after the surgery, he was just, I don't, he's like, I don't want to have to do this all the time. And then he put a football in his hands. He said everything changed. He said he got that motivation. And when you look at Alex Smith and his career, what he had to bounce back from, you see this with the leg injury. Not many people would be able to bounce back from that injury and get back onto the field, and he did. It's by far the greatest comeback story in NFL history. And another guy, you look at Joe Theismann, who had also had the same crazy leg injury that he had. Joe Theismann never made it back to an NFL field. And that's the thing about this story is he does finish the comeback story. That Not many people can say that they did that. And this past season, he didn't have the statistically this real great year, but he got the Washington football team into the postseason. The Washington football team. Not many people can say that. And he won the Comeback Player of the Year award, which was very deserving of Alex Smith to get that award. And it brings up another question here. Should the league change the award name, the Comeback Player of the Year award, to the Alex Smith Comeback Player of the Year award? I'm going to say no. I'm just not a huge fan of naming awards after people or moments it just it kind of puts people into one box of all right this is what you need to be to be great or to achieve this award it's just not something I'm a fan of but if they do name it after someone it should be Alex Smith yeah when I look at this I'm going to say, yeah, I think that they should name it after Alex Smith. And when you look at some of these biggest awards in the NFL, the biggest one out there is obviously the Super Bowl, and that's the Lombardi Trophy named after Vince Lombardi, the head coach of the Green Bay Packers. He won the first two Super Bowls. When I look at this award, I said, and we both agreed, it was the greatest comeback in NFL history. And I don't think there's been anyone in NFL history that's had to battle back from that much to get back onto the field. So I think they should. I think they should change that award. And it's tough because when you look at the Comeback Player of the Year award, it's different than that of a MVP or an Offensive Player of the Year. That's not necessarily something you can name some name after because there's not a clear-cut best Offensive Player of the Year ever. Defensive player-wise, there's not a clear-cut guy that you can choose there. So for me... I think that they should change the name because in this at this instance, there's a clear-cut best comeback ever. And I don't know if there will ever be a comeback story quite like this one. And that's why I would be okay with adding that to the front of it. And now looking back at Alex Smith's career as a whole, is there a moment to you that stuck out to you? Maybe a victory, maybe a season, or just something he did in general, a feat that stuck out to you over his career? For me, I think it's just getting back on the field at 36, which is just uncommon already, and being able to start six games, go 5-1, and one, and make the playoffs. 
that's an incredible feat in and of itself. And to do that coming off a brutal leg injury coupled with that infection is just mind-blowing. Yeah, it's a, it's a great one. I'm going to go in a different direction, um, in a different memory here. That Obviously, that's the biggest one he will always be remembered for. I'm going to go more of a personal um, memory here. Alex Smith's the guy, when he came into the league, he was deemed a bust after his first season. He had a 2-5 and five record in the seven games he started. He had one touchdown and 11 interceptions, a completion percentage of 50.9. His passer rating was below zero. It was not good whatsoever. The following year, 16 touchdowns, 16 picks. His passer rating, 44.4. Next year, two touchdowns, four picks, under 50, 50% completion percentage. His quarterback rating, 57. When you look at it, those are obviously very bad statistics. Misses season with the shoulder injury, then bounces back a little bit. Has a decent season comparative to what he had. 18 touchdowns, 12 picks, and then 14 touchdowns, 10 picks. And then it gets into really where Alex Smith comes into play. Everyone wrote him off as a bust and the San Francisco is not bringing him back. He comes back under Jim Harbaugh and has a, t- has a season that's completely opposite what we've seen from him. 17 touchdowns and 5 picks in his 16 games. Then comes back and has, in 9 games, 13 touchdowns, 5 picks. He turns his career around where he was a guy who turned the ball over a ton. He turns it around into a career where all of a sudden he's one of the most efficient quarterbacks in the NFL. And that's what ignited his career. He got guys like Andy Reid interested in him. And then Washington obviously was interested in him as well. They make a trade for him. And just all the times he had to overcome different quarterbacks coming in. And he never once complained. He helped Colin Kaepernick out a lot help develop him. Patrick Mahomes, the same way. Both those guys really credit Alex Smith for what he did. And just to be a guy like that in the league is tough because you you were the number one overall pick at one time too. You want to know that you're the best. But for me, a personal memory that always stick out to me, I'm 49ers fan. Alex Smith led the 49ers. The first playoff game I ever witnessed, old enough to remember the San Francisco 49ers, was his first playoff game ever against the New Orleans Saints, where the offense was considered one that could not score points late. Alex Smith led two touchdown scoring drives in the final 330 to outduel Drew Brees through a touchdown pass with nine seconds left to Vernon Davis to win the game. And that was the first playoff win I had ever seen the 49ers have in the first playoff game I'd ever seen the 49ers play in. And it always will go down as my favorite game for the San Francisco 49ers just because of the stakes and how Alex Smith responded. Biggest game of his career at that moment, and he steps up in the biggest way. So for me, Alex Smith, fantastic career. Wish him nothing but the best moving forward, and I'm sure he's excited to get back to the kids he now has and his wife as well and enjoy uh, life a little bit different outside of the NFL. And now before we get into our next break and our last break on Sportsmanlike Conduct, we're going to go ahead and try to finish up our free agency grades here. We have the NFC East and the NFC West to get done before we get into the draft next week. First team we have up here is the Dallas Cowboys. What grade are you giving them for their free agency run? I'm giving them a B. They brought, they re-signed Dak Prescott. That's the big thing. It would be higher if that long-term contract wasn't two years late. Even with that, they brought in some 
good defensive players, Keanu Neal, DeMonte Kazee, and that's really their area of need is uh, is defense. I think Dak will be able to elevate the offense, but defense is the biggest problem, and I think they addressed that partially. Yeah, for me, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go C plus. Um, I like obviously getting Dak. Dak's deal's done. You absolutely had to do that. I don't think there was much of a choice with that. But like you said, late at that, and the signings they did make on defense, the Keanu Neal and the Kazi as well. Both those guys, I like the additions, but I just would like to see more. When you look at this market for defensive players, it was so low. There's big name defenders signing to cheaper contracts for just a couple of years, one, two year deals. I would have loved to see them really go out and get a couple of those guys. I mean, you look at Desmond King, a guy, slot corner, who's been a all pro before in his career already, goes and signs a one year, $3 million deal with the Texans. You couldn't afford to bring in an all pro slot corner at one year, $3 million? I think you could have. And yeah, Jerry Jones is going to get a round of applause for signing Dak Prescott to the long-term deal, but there was still more to be done. Dak Prescott's a phenomenal quarterback, borderline top 10 QB, but he doesn't have a defense. His offense is very stacked, but the offensive line, we everyone thought, oh, the Dallas Cowboys have the best line in the league. They did four or five years ago. This line's deteriorated, not the same. Actually had a couple retire as well. Offensive line is a need. Defense all over is a need. I just wanted to see more from this team. I know they were kind of strapped with cap space to begin with, but you brought in Dan Quinn. He goes gets two of his guys from his former secondary at the Falcons. I like it, but I would have went more non-injured and guys you know are going to be on the field because otherwise we're going to see the Cowboys in the same exact spot that they were in last season. Next team we up we have up here is the Philadelphia Eagles. What grade do you give them? I'm giving them a D. Uh, the really, it's it's time that they're kind of breaking it down after just spending big on bad contracts. Overall, uh, moving on from Carson Wentz was the right decision, but you're not getting a whole lot back—a conditional second or first, depending on how much Wentz plays for Indianapolis is not the return you want and you eat a decent amount of dead cap for his contract, it's not great. That's not what you wanted out of a guy who you thought was going to be your franchise quarterback. And any moves that you made that are beneficial still just kind of get sullied by that. And it even something today, uh, it comes out that the Eagles want competition in the quarterback room, they want a quarterback competition, so they're not even going with their pick from last year, Jalen Hurts. They're not going to commit to him. So it's just it's a bad time to be an Eagles fan. Yeah, I'm I'm going to give them a C. And the one I a couple of signings I liked was Eric Wilson, veteran. That that's a nice pickup for your defense that needed some key players. Anthony Harris at safety as well. I thought that was a good addition for them. But what's, the one that I don't understand is, and you brought up the point, they want veteran competition in that uh, quarterback room, and they want to bring in a guy because they won't commit to Jalen Hurts. You bring in Joe Flacco. 
Is that going to be the guy that competes against Jalen Hurts? Also, okay, I'm going to draft my guy. You had the sixth overall pick, and you moved all the way back to 12. Now you'd be lucky, in my opinion, to get Lance or Mac Jones, and there's a good chance neither of them make it to you. What what veteran competition are you bringing in? So, yeah, you brought in a couple of good defensive players, and I'll give you a C because of it, but I don't like the handling of Jalen Hurts here. Jalen Hurts, I don't, I'm not saying he can be a starting quarterback in this league, but it's definitely not the way I'd go about it. I would not put the same stress on him that you did with Carson Wentz. You saw Carson Wentz definitely fall off from what we know Carson Wentz to be going down this same exact path. So I'm giving him a C because of that. I don't, not a huge fan of how they've handled their offseason so far, and I don't necessarily know what they're going to do in the draft. I don't think many people do. Um, trade back to 12 was interesting. We'll see how that, that plays out for them. We're going to take our last break here on Sportsmanlike Conduct. When we come back, we have two more teams in the NFC East and the NFC West to get to before a big rule change in the NFL. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back into Unsportsmanlike Conduct on KALA HD2 and the 106.1 FM dial. I'm Logan Howe. With me, as always, is David Meyer. And we're going to get right back into our free agency grades here. Next team up is the Washington football team. How did they do this offseason? I'm going to give them a B. I think just making the playoffs last year, even in the dumpster fire that was the NFC East, is a big deal. This is a rebuilding team that they have their identity on defense. And this offseason, they're putting together kind of that foundation for their offense. They bring in uh, Curtis Samuel as a to kind of solidify that wide receiver group, and he can do a lot of things on the offensive side of the ball. And then the kind of pseudo-coach that is Ryan Fitzpatrick, who might start at the beginning of the season, might go the whole season, might not even start a game. It's just they need to develop a quarterback, and I think they're in a really good position in the NFC East. Yeah, I think the fact that they made the playoffs is what hurts them just a little bit because now you do have to make Ryan Fitzpatrick your quarterback, which is not anything against Ryan Fitzpatrick. He's a very decent quarterback at that. But they would have liked to draft their guy the future. Now they're not in a position to get him. So getting Fitzpatrick I think is huge because when you look at the veteran options that were on the market in free agency, he was probably the best one out there. There wasn't a bunch of big-name guys. So getting Fitzpatrick was big for them. It also puts them in a position to compete within the NFC East right away. They don't have to wait. They were the reigning division champs. They don't have to, okay, take a year away. When this division is so weak, they have an opportunity to really run with it. And the Curtis Samuel one is probably my favorite signing, just how versatile he is and getting back with Ron Rivera. But one that sticks out to me is William Jackson. Bringing him in from Cincinnati, he's a very underrated corner. He's a guy that in Cincinnati didn't get a lot of attention because the Bengals aren't that great. But he's not a lockdown guy, but he's a very good corner at that. He has quite a few pass deflections over his career. Not a huge interception guy, but he's always around the football making plays. So adding him to a team like this is huge. And also, you're really filling out that wide receiver room. You have Terry McLaurin. You add Curtis Samuel. But also Adam Humphreys out of the slot now. You have quite a few weapons for Ryan Fitzpatrick. I really do believe that they can make the postseason with it. I'm going to give them a B plus. I like what they did. Now, if this was a regular team, I'd go probably a B to a C plus. 
But this is a team that I think put themselves in position to win a division once again. Because all the other teams in this division I don't think got all that better. The football team, I think, made some strides to be a better team. So for me, I'm going to give a B plus. I like it a lot. Last team in the NFC East we have here is the New York Giants. What grade are you giving them? I'm giving them a B as well. No huge moves. Actually, I think they had one of the biggest moves of the offseason. Bringing in Kenny Galladay, it signals to me at least that you're really going all in on either just kind of together David Gettleman and Daniel Jones, uh, or they're going to make a move in the draft for a QB. Either one, they're going kind of all in. You bring in Kenny Galladay, you take a really good veteran tight end in Kyle Rudolph, and re-signing Nate Soldier is a, a decent uh, retaining. I don't think he's as good as he once was, but he's a solid lineman. Yeah, this Giants team, uh, there's just so many holes on this team. They, I'm going to give them a B- minus because they did go find a way to fill quite a few positions. But it's a, with a lot of veterans like Reggie Ragland. Bringing Larry Williams back was key. Kyle Rudolph. And then, obviously, Galladay, he's a top-tier wide receiver in the NFL, but also with Dory Jackson. These just some just average kind of guys to fill in position-wise. They're veteran pieces that I think are average at their position. I would like to see them do a little bit more, in my opinion. And Gettleman's been an interesting general manager in general. Um, I, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of his um, with some of the moves he's made, but this team I thought could have done more. To, to get better pieces because this division is so weak, but they didn't. So for me, I'm going to go C plus B minus because they do bring in some big names and retain a couple guys, but I would just like to see them make a few more splashes, spend that money. Don't be afraid to spend. If you're the giants, try to get a team that you can get into the postseason. Now we have the NFC West. We're going to start with the Seattle Seahawks. What'd you give them as a grade? I'm giving them a C minus. They lost a lot of key players and didn't really bring all that much back. Resigning Tyler Lockett is big. Uh, they get Gabe Jackson at guard, which is nice, but it's no. There isn't a lot that they added to me that seems all right. This team got better for the most part. I think this team just got straight up worse in the off season. Yeah, the Seahawks. I mean, what an off season. You try to make some big moves. The one move I do like is they cut Carlos Dunlap and brought him back on a cheaper deal. I'm a fan of that. Bringing in Kerry Hyder, he's a depth pass rusher for you. He'll probably start on this team, to be honest. But he's more of a rotational pass rusher. But the biggest headline around the Seattle Seahawks was Russell Wilson possibly getting traded. And if that's your best headline of the offseason, you're doing something wrong. So for me, I'm going to give them a D because... You have one of the best quarterbacks in the league, and you can't manage to keep him happy when you did have a little bit of money to spend, and you made some moves to create cap, and you didn't make any real big moves to help this team out. You needed pass rushers. Pass rushers signed for really cheap, and you couldn't go get one of them. I question the Seattle Seahawks. I think they rely too much on their coaching, and they think that they can get by with that. But this NFC West, depending on what happens next Thursday night, as long as the 49ers don't take Mac Jones, this NFC West got a lot better. You add Stafford into it, another year of Kyler Murray, and another young quarterback into this division. 
this division's really good, and Seattle, in my opinion, is getting older and sliding down the ranks of the NFC West. Next team up is the Rams. Where'd you grade the Rams? I'm going to give them a B. The The big move, obviously, is Matthew Stafford. They give up a lot of picks, which is a pretty standard Rams move. They bring back Leonard Floyd. I think they got better overall, but not all that noticeably. Obviously, Stafford is a big move, but besides that, they don't they didn't add all that much. I still think they're a very good team, and Matthew Stafford is gonna raise them a lot, but there wasn't a lot of depth movement that I liked. Yeah, the Rams were a tough one. I'm gonna give them a B just because the jump from Stafford from Goff to Stafford, that's a massive jump. You went from a average quarterback to a borderline top 10 elite guy. So for me, I like that jump a lot. One signing that was kind of a head-scratcher was the Leonard Floyd signing. A huge contract on a four-year deal. I wouldn't have made that deal, but is what it is. It's really the move to get Stafford that gets them to a B. If they would have ran it back with Jared Goff, this is like a D offseason. It really wasn't great, but I just think Stafford's going to be that much better for Sean McVay. Sean McVay needed a quarterback that could finally really take over and just be a guy who can make plays consistently. When he plays, when Jared Goff plays teams in the division, especially the San Francisco 49ers, they play at the sticks. And the, if you really watch the game, there's people running open deep, but they don't trust him to make the throws down there. So they kind of just let that go and they'll play at the sticks. And it's worked well. The 49ers have swept the Rams in back to back seasons. And Nick Mullins led the way for the Rams to get beat the second time this season in L.A. So I think there's a lot of moves to be made. It's questionable what the Rams did. Would you have traded all those picks for Stafford knowing you already don't have a future? In my opinion, yes, because your team's not going to get any better than it is right now. It's only going to get worse. with The the cap's going to go up, but you're tight in cap space already. You have no draft picks. Might as well get rid of the other ones to get an elite quarterback and hope you can win it this year. They're like on a two, three-year window, and if they don't win it in these next two, three years, they're going to be in trouble. But I also said that a couple years ago when they made all the moves. They brought in Tlaib. They brought in Fowler, all those guys, and they made it to the Super Bowl and lost, and they still went after Jalen Ramsey. They are a few years away from really kind of crashing down, but for right now, I like it. I like the move to go get Stafford. Next team we have here is the Arizona Cardinals. What grade are you giving them? I'm giving them a B. They had more of the big name guys, even if they're on the kind of end of their uh, life as a player. Uh, J.J. Watt and A.J. Green, I think they could be good, but they're pretty injury-prone. A.J. Green was a non-factor in his last two seasons in Cincinnati. Uh, They didn't... They added Rodney Hudson to the offensive line, which was a a good uh, addition, but they still need more help there, and as they definitely need defensive help in the secondary is my biggest area of need for them, and they didn't really do much to address that. Yeah, for me, I'm going to go... I'm going to give them a B+. Um, I like what they did. Um, the AJ Green signing, 
a wide receiver. Kind of a head scratcher a little bit because I would have liked to see them go younger, but they didn't. J.J. Watt, bringing him on the defensive line is huge. Rodney Hudson, you've talked about all three of them. Great signings for him. And I, I'm with you. Secondary is their biggest need. If they nail this draft, this could be a perfect offseason for them. If they, Because right now, when you look at these corners, all these quarterbacks, and there's a lot of trade-up talks going around, these corners could start to slide to them. I believe they're picking 16th, 15-16 overall. I believe it's 16. These corners could start to slide to them. Sertan might not go to 11 or 12. And then you have guys like J.C. Horn coming down. If you get J.C. Horn at 16, that's fantastic value in my opinion, and they should jump all over it because he's, good. he's, in my opinion, the best corner in this draft. Patrick Sertan, I think, is very talented, but I think J.C. Horn's going to have the best career. If they can get him, this offseason was fantastic. I don't know if anyone, obviously, Tampa Bay, in my opinion, had the best offseason. You could say they had one of the best offseasons in NFL history, but Arizona is up there as well. I think they had a good offseason. They, they're a young team with a lot of talent, so when you're a young team and have a lot of talent, what's your number one thing you need to do? You need to bring in veteran presences. That's what they went out and did. And Matt Miller said there's rumors that the Cardinals want to try to move up and get one of these receivers, Chase, Waddle, um, or Devontae Smith. That would be a giant mistake in my opinion. You can't keep on loading the offensive side of the ball when it's your defense that lets you down most of the time last season. I think that would be a giant mistake, and not to say that will happen, but it is a rumor going around right now. They need to go corner, and if they do, their offseason would be very good. I think even that. I think what they've done this offseason positions them ahead of the Seattle Seahawks in this division after all they've done, and if they do, go and get that corner. Last team we have here in the NFC West is the San Francisco 49ers. What grade do you give in them? I'm going to give them a B plus. I think... Within the NFC West, they had the best offseason. Trent Williams, highest paid lineman. Uh, obviously, that's a huge piece to bring back. Bringing in Alex Mack. Or, yeah, Alex Mack is definitely helpful. Your offensive line got a lot better with him. It's just, what are they going to do at quarterback? That's the question. You traded... A lot of picks for that number three overall. Where do you go? That is the deciding factor for me. Yeah, and I'm going to save all my frustration and what that pick could possibly be for next Wednesday. Um, I'm 100% anyone but Mac Jones, uh, Trey Lance. I prefer Justin Fields, but I'm also very okay with Trey Lance and Kyle Shanahan, that uh, duo working together. But just not Mac Jones. Not Mac Jones. But I'll get into that more next week when we have our NFL draft uh, special, but now looking at their offseason, I'm going to go B plus as well. I thought that was a very good grade for them. You bring back Trent Williams. It was a must. You had to. They they pry him away from the Kansas City Chiefs. Bring back your fullback, your all-pro fullback, Kyle Juszczyk. Then you bring back both your starting cornerbacks, Emmanuel Mosley, Jason Verrett. You brought up Alex Mack at center. You bring in some depth edge rushers. You lost Kerry Hyder and Deion Jordan, who are your depth guys. But now you bring in Samson Ebucom and Arden Key. He was a the guy they brought in today. Arden Key in 2016, after the 2016 draft, was the, supposed to be the number one overall pick in the 2017 draft. He got in some trouble, didn't have a good senior season. He fell all the way to the third round. Didn't have a great career with the Raiders, but I think an opportunity to work with Chris Kucerich 
he's a guy I'm excited to watch. He's just kind of one of those under-the-radar guys that I'm really excited to watch because I really liked his tape coming out of LSU. And then they brought back a lot of these veteran starters. DJ Jones, a nice depth piece that they were able to bring back. I didn't think they'd be able to. They're still working on a contract with Ronald Blair. Brought back Jaquaski Tart. Then they also brought in their starting slot corner, um, Kwan Williams, back. They've made quite a few moves to keep this team together. Last season, they wanted to keep as many people together as they could. They lost Sanders and Buckner. They kept the rest of the team. Now, because of COVID and the cap space, they're able to keep most of the team together once again. They haven't really lost anyone that consistently played through the last two seasons. A big name, Tevin Coleman. That's not going to hurt him too much. Kendrick Bourne, a wide receiver three. I think they can easily replace in the draft. Richard Sherman. He's a guy that he's starting to show his age. Why he's a fantastic corner and one of my favorite players to ever play in the NFL. He's starting to show his age. I think this offseason was really good for him, and I couldn't imagine them getting any more guys back than they did. I thought they would lose quite a few guys. They found a way to keep a lot of their dudes. And I'm with you. Next Thursday's huge for this team. That trade up to three was the biggest trade in franchise history. Now you have to make the right pick here. I think Kyle Shanahan with Trey Lance or Justin Fields is fantastic. They both they both are fantastic in different areas. I love Fields because of his leadership, his accuracy, and I love and his velocity on his deep balls. I love Trey Lance because he's an elite athlete and he's got the kind of Russell Wilson moon ball. And being a 49ers fan, Trey Lance reminds me a lot of Colin Kaepernick. That's my comparison for him. It's Colin Kaepernick. And he was a good quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. So, for me, either one of those two. But I don't want to give away too much of next week's show as we get into the NFL draft and we give our mock draft. But we're now we're going to move into a rule change within the NFL. They've now moved the number system of what numbers certain players can wear on their jerseys. Wide receivers now can go from 1, one to 19. They originally did not have one through nine. And then also other skill position players like cornerbacks, safeties can also wear one through nine. And these numbers they were not allowed to wear, but they did wear in college. Some players have stepped forward and already said, I'm going to change my number. And it's interesting because if you want to change your number for this season, you actually have to buy out your remaining jerseys that they have in stock of you before you can do it. A lot like when LeBron and AD tried to switch their numbers, LeBron to 6, AD to 23, they weren't able to do that. Now, you look at this rule, other than having to buy out your whole entire stock from Nike to change your number, it is free the following year, by the way. Do you like this new rule where they can wear whatever number they want? Yeah, I mean, there wasn't... The only reason they had restrictions on numbering was eligibility for offensive linemen and they're still pretty restricted to 50 to uh, 79 which isn't I don't think too many offensive linemen uh, are selling a lot of jerseys no offense but (laughs) it it makes sense to me I am not a fan of having to buy out the rest of your stock not a fan of that didn't know that Um, but also, I think it's a decent move for the team and revenue-wise because, yeah, all these people have, like, 
Derrick Henry jerseys, number 22. Well, now he's just number two. Oh, I want that one. I want the new number. So I think that could generate a decent bit of revenue. Yeah, I'm still split on it. I want to see what it looks like. I'm totally fine with giving the players the option to do that because I think it's cool. I do, but I wish that some of these guys, they're going to be changing the number around. I just wish they could have came from school with that number. So you're used to it. Like I, I know one player specifically on the 49ers, Debo Samuel, is going to go back to number one. I'm so used to seeing him in number 19 that one's going to take a while to get used to. I never watched him play in number one because I didn't watch him at South Carolina. I've watched YouTube videos, but never watched him actually play for South Carolina. So it just it's going to take some getting used to. I will say, though, you brought up Derrick Henry. Bleacher Report came out with some jersey edits, and I will not lie. Derrick Henry looked very good in number two. He looked really good. And Derrick Henry is the guy that I did see play quite a bit in Alabama. So it, maybe that's what it is. I'm used to seeing him in number two, but I do like it. I just It's going to take some getting used to. I think it's going to be fantastic for these players. And now looking at it, do you think a lot of players will actually change their number? I think so. A lot of guys really liked what number they had in college, and that's a big part of like their story to the NFL and becoming like the person they are today. So I think that has more sentimental value. I think we're going to see it more often with younger players in the, like I'd say, 26 and down range. And just because they haven't had those, they haven't really established, all right, this is my number I've had in the NFL for a long time. So I think that will be the uh, group that changes the most. Yeah. It's tough because while I do think it'd be the younger guys more likely to do it, because a lot of these veterans, I mean, they've made a living in that jersey number and they're not going to switch it. I know Stephon Diggs is one player that stepped out and he said, All my fans have my number 14 jersey. I'm not going to do that to them. But it's tough because unless they wait a season, then it makes sense. Some of these younger players, they're not making enough to buy out their stock from Nike. And some of these players don't have. A bunch of stock at Nike, but you look at some of these younger guys who are still on rookie deals, haven't quite got paid yet, but are going. They are top tier players. Those are guys that this is going to affect them. Like Josh Allen, he's not going to change his number because he was 17, but he's one example of a guy who's about ready to get paid and has a lot of jerseys at Nike. What if he was to change his number? And he won't because he was 17. But that's just an example. What if he was? That costs a lot of money to buy that stock out. So. I think it may not happen this season. You may not see a whole bunch this year, but over the next two years, once it's free again, you're going to see quite a few players change. And it'll be interesting. I think it's going to be exciting to see. I mean, in college football, you have guys like Odell wearing number three, Jalen Ramsey wearing number eight, Zeke wearing 15. Wouldn't that be something? Ezekiel Elliott back in number 15. I just don't know if I can envision that one again after seeing him in 21 for so long. But I'm excited to at least get the opportunity if that's what he decides he wants to do and the draft is a week away here it's gonna be next thursday will be round one rounds two and three will be on friday and four through seven will be on saturday with just the final four minutes we have remaining here we're gonna go over a couple buy or sell draft rumors that just came out this last week one the cincinnati Bengals will select jamar chase and pair him back up with his old quarterback from lsu joe burrow i'm gonna sell that I think Jamar Chase is available, but you're either taking Panay Suel just 
you need offensive line help, and he is a just great... I don't think there's any real big negative about him as a tackle other than his wingspan is a little shorter than what you would expect to see at his height, but that's not a huge deal. He's too talented to let fall past you, and you have such a need for his position. So I, uh, I'm i not going to take that. For me, just a week away from the draft, I'm going to buy it for now, just to make things a little interesting. Jamar Chase and Joe Burrow had a fantastic connection at LSU, and Jamar Chase was by far and away the number one receiver, and everyone talked about CeeDee Lamb, Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs. If they had the choice, they would have took Jamar Chase if he was in that draft. So I think the Bengals do pair him up there. I think they find that there might be some options for them later in the draft, not late rounds, but that second round. If they can move up, let's say that bottom half of the first round, get back into like 23, 25 range, they could get like a Christian Darisol possibly or some of those later tackles that may still be on the board and see what happens because also – there's going to be a run on quarterbacks here in the first probably six picks. I think by pick eight, all four, the top four QBs will be gone. There may be one left there, but I think he may even be gone by 10. A team try to move up to 9, 10. Make sure, I think we can see five QBs go on the top 10. Top 15 for sure. I think all five QBs are gone by the top 15, but I think more realistically, we could see all five gone in the top 10 by some trades. So for me, that's going to push tackle talent down the board, and they think they can get one a little bit later while getting Burrow's favorite target. Now, I wouldn't do it. I would take Sue. I'd take the for sure, surefire starting left tackle, best tackle in the draft. I absolutely would. But it's the Cincinnati Bengals we're dealing with here. They may, they may just get excited about that chance to go pair up Burrow and Jamar Chase. That concludes this episode of Unsportsmanlike Conduct. If you're on Twitter, give us a follow at K-A-L-A underscore U-C. If you're on Facebook or Instagram, look us up at Unsportsmanlike Conduct. And be on the lookout for next week's Instagram story as we will give hints as to who next next week's athlete will be. If you get that right, you get a shout-out on the show as well as tagged in our story. Last week's winner was Braden Lavin, guest Richard Sherman correctly. Thank you for listening, and good night. See ya.